Hello and welcome to another episode of the Arena Craft Podcast. Coming to you on Spotify, Stitcher, various other podcasting locations, and on Covert Go Blue's YouTube channel. I am one of your hosts. The one, in best of one, they call me CGB. And the other, my co-host, the creator of the Arena Craft Podcast, and Alchemy's biggest fan. I can throw that at you. You know, you, you can go for the branding. I, I, I don't have to hide. I, I got a cower from these, uh, the haters. Arjuna, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Thank you, Kovac Go Blue. It's a pleasure to be on the Alchemy Craft Podcast. Rebrand pending, by the way. But uh, yeah, I am uh, phoning in today from Boise, Idaho. I rolled out here to do a little Christmas partying with some of my co-workers. So stoked about that. I gotta tell you, CGB, they don't make winters like they used to in uh, Oregon where I'm from. <laughs> this is a reminder of what those in the middle of the country have to contend with. And I'm sure you are indeed at the moment contending with that. The middle of the country? Boise, Idaho? Hey, man. <laughs> I mean... Look, you... <laughs> Wow, the you you coastals, you know, you finally you finally moved just a little bit off that Pacific that Pacific Ocean and you're just in the Midwest automatically in Idaho. Okay. Okay. Look, there is a blizzard raging outside. I've been snowed in for like a week. It's nice that you feel a little of what I'm going through. There's probably going to be comments on the video because if they could see you right now, there's a lot of white in your background. That's just because of the blizzard, right? You're snowed in completely. I'm literally about to reenact the blizzard brawl. You know the blizzard brawl? That's, that's where I am. It's going to be cool. Take out some low drop creatures. And uh, anyway, we have had... A hot minute now to play with the new Alchemy release. I assume that's what we're going to spend pretty much the entire episode talking about. Why would we discuss anything else, really? You know what? Sometimes CGB and I plan, sometimes we don't. Like, is there anything that you want to, like, get out of the way before we just get elbow deep in the new Alchemy format? Sure. There was an Innistrad Championship um, over the weekend. The Innistrad Absolute Championship, the height of competitive play for the plane of Innistrad, the combination of Crimson Vow, Midnight Hunt. The pros and people who grinded and qualified came out to play the format. There was over... 56% variations on is it this and is it that. There was Historic as well, which the top eight was played. The top eight featured, I believe, an hour and a half or something. Game one, Golgari Food Mirror. <sighs> That's right. That's right. Wasn't there a competitor who literally just timed out? And uh, there was a lot of that in the top eight. Congrats to the Japanese team. They put four players into top eight, and there was a chance in the winning in round that would have been six. Their team did something really cool. One of the coolest things I've ever heard of for team testing in this split type format. Their team, I believe, had, or it was like six players and six players, 12 players total. Six players played historic and only tested historic, and six players only tested standard. Genius. It gets better. The day before deck lists were due, the teams just handed each other the lists. They all registered the lists, both of them. And then they spent the next week, because deck lists are due a week early, learning the other deck. So the historic team had played zero standard, and they got their standard list, registered it, and then spent the week learning how to play that standard deck since they had another week before the tournament. It was really cool, and they obviously put in the work that a lot of pro teams used to put in, and they got rewarded. But man, an hour and a half for a game one? 
A Golgari food mirror? I hope the commentators get paid well. I didn't watch the whole top eight or anything, but I heard that there was some kind of like low grade shade being thrown on the format from the commentators. How much of that can you put up with before you have to start acknowledging it, right? How far can it go before you just completely pass out? I also watched some of the viewership numbers. I never saw it over 10,000, which is really bad for a magic tournament. I bring this up because it is news. We'd talk about it anyway. We'd probably just talk about deck lists from that event and if we didn't have an alchemy format to talk about, we'd probably just talk about decklists from that event and comb through them for anything interesting, any kind of juice. But since we have new cards and a kind of ridiculous format and one of the biggest changes in magic history, we can talk about that. I was fortunate enough to play the format about 10 hours or so uh, before I had to hop on this flight and come out here. So I feel like I've gotten enough reps under my hands, under my belt to kind of have an idea of what's cooking in this format. First thing I want to say CGB is I doubt you were disappointed by this format. <laughs> I saw some very strong blue cards flying around. Ooh, the, the, yeah, there's some really nice blue cards. I will say this, I lurked your stream. Plenty of Sultai stuff going on and plenty of complaining about werewolves. And I think there was some Bant shenanigans. <laughs> A lot of complaining about werewolves. You know what Alchemy highlighted to me? It highlights it to me how infrequently I played against werewolves in the regular standard format. I was literally making some kindergarten level mistakes against werewolves just due to the sheer inexperience of not having played them very often. And so it was actually highlighting to me just how much some of these archetypes had been completely demolished in the regular standard format, which was really cool. So I actually got to see werewolves in particular. I saw a lot of those lists. I got to see them actually doing stuff, doing their thing and having fun. I don't necessarily think they're like back on the map by any means, but yeah, it was really cool. Oh, I was going to say just as a big view of this format and the first couple days in it, it does feel like a proper standard refresh. Between the nerfs and the new cards being added, and of course all the new uh, mechanics that we have to figure out how good they are and how they work, it does feel like a lot of different decks and a lot of different cards are good now. Whereas before that, that pool felt really narrow. It just felt like the walls were closing in every day. White's over here and Epiphany's over here and they're just just squeezing you know the walls are just closing in and it feels like that space has been restored i have a lot of decks i want to play a lot of things look good i've been rolled i've been destroyed by a lot of things and uh, excited to talk about all of those no absolutely yeah i i feel the same way i was just gonna say i made a twitter post which was about does the cycle of kind of cheaper creatures that they've released in alchemy which have really been pushing certain archetypes i think it's really cool so, okay, A of all, the elephant in the room, there's a lot of rare cards in alchemy. So let's get that out of the way. I don't want to spend the episode hopping on the arena economy, but it is definitely true that this release in particular is highlighting the fact that wild cards are not in long supply for a lot of arena players. One thing I will say is that in future alchemy releases, we're not going to have these 63 card dumps of just like all of these rares. It's going to be a modest amount of cards getting added to the format. 30. They say 30. It's going to be a little less of a hard pill to swallow in the future releases, but let's acknowledge that is kind of a squeeze, and I'm not going to pretend that that's not in the field. I did like that they released the cycle of these cheap, uncommon creatures. So we've got Angel of Unity, Curse Bound Witch, Fearsome Whelp, and Tenacious Pup. 
There's a blue one which buffs giants and, and wizards and stuff, but no, I wasn't that impressed by that card. But these other four cards, I think I saw a lot of people playing them. I saw them doing a lot of work. And I feel like they really putting in work to revitalize some of these archetypes that weren't seeing as much play in regular stand. So I was really happy about that. Did you get whelped, CGB? Which specific whelp are we talking about? The dragon? The fearsome whelp? The fearsome whelp. Let's read this card. One and a red creature dragon at uncommon it's a 1-1 flyer at the beginning of your end step each dragon card in your hand perpetually gains this spell costs one less to cast so i don't know about you but i played against a tremendous amount of dragons on day one of the alchemy format i did end up getting rolled by it sometimes i don't know about you i didn't play against is it dragons no blue in this i played against a lot of mono red dragons and boros dragons and it was pretty bizarre because I was playing decks like Omnath, a mono blue deck that I was working on. And all of these, you know, I see like Orb of Dragonkind or Fearsome Whelp, and I'm like, oh, dragons. This is a mid-range deck. I'm good against mid-range decks. Beating mid-range decks is what I do. This is going to be fine. I'm the bigger mid-range deck, and nobody gets away with mid-range in these formats anyway. And then you look at your life total, and it you don't know how this happened. And you're just like, wait, you're telling me I'm at like four life and three of my lands have Townraiser Tyrant counters on them? I'll tell you what that card does in a minute. And my opponent probably has a Goldspan Dragon and an Adult Gold Dragon. And I've just been attacked in the air for hasty damage every turn for the last three turns. Four to six to eight damage a turn. Sounds fun. Omnath just looks into the sky like, there they go. <laughs> They're going over my head. I can't do nothing. <laughs> Oh my gosh, man. It's like freaking Game of Thrones up in here. The dragons have been bringing it. Um, So Townraiser Tyrant's a card I mentioned. This card looks really good. It's two red red for a 4-4 flying creature dragon at rare. And when Townraiser Tyrant enters the battlefield, target land you don't control loses all abilities except mana abilities and gains at the beginning of your upkeep. This permanent deals two damage to you unless you sacrifice it. You start getting this option like right away of get shocked on your upkeep or get rid of your land, which you can't really afford to do. And if this card comes down on turn three, it's a house on turn four. If it comes down on turn three because of Orb of Dragonkind or Fearsome Whelp or a treasure, you're not going to sack that land anytime soon. I mean, it's like you played a 6-4 that just keeps getting bigger because it gets in more damage than it looks like it actually gets in and the land loses all abilities your creature land no worky it's really sad your field of ruin no worky it's a very brutal card so Townraiser tyrant looks like one of the rares that dragon mages are really going to want for the format every time i played against this card it hurt a part of my soul dude and a part of your face as well when i saw this card previewed i was like this is either just shy of playable or just a total destroyer. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. It's a four mana, four, four flyer. You said you're off those. <laughs> I know. I know. They got me. This is early in the format. We can't go proclaiming kind of the eventual end. I proclaim victory. Uh, you know what? Enjoy that, CGB. You earned it. This card is looking like a total house. And one of the things that I think 
is easy to miss about this card is that you can kill the tyrant and you still eat it with the land. There's no text on this card which is like until this leaves the battlefield or whatever. And so what ends up happening is like if your opponent resolves a couple of these in quick succession, sure you can answer the tyrant, but you're either getting stone rained or you're going to pain town. It stacks up really nastily, especially if you're trying to do any kind of a CGB style of deck or like me, I was playing this ramp deck and ramp decks do not want to get stone rained. One of the easiest ways to beat a ramp deck is to just blow up a couple of their lands and they're like, great, look at this sweet seven drop I have in my land that I just can't cast on curve. Meanwhile, you're getting beaten down with all these hasty flyers. So yeah, Town Raiser Tyrant looks like an absolute house. Like you said, it is kind of like a mid-range killer. So one of the nastiest things that happened to me, playing against what looked like a Rakdos treasure dragons, Kalane the Painter, and they have Immerstorm Predator, and they play the Tyrant. They tag, like, a land that I can't get rid of. I kill the Tyrant. The next turn, they play Olivia Crimson Bride and bring back the Tyrant. It's seven in the air, and now two of my lands are shocking me, and it was well played. Oh my goodness. Yeah, that's that's pretty much GG. Yeah, the dragons list looks pretty good. I saw some mana form Hellkite happening, and I thought that was pretty sweet, especially in a burn deck. Again, you uh, you really don't live very long when all of your burn spells are also becoming additional hasty flyer burn threats to the face. So yeah, I don't know. This mono red dragons deck, I'm not sure how competitive it's going to end up being, but I was pretty impressed. Another card I saw out of that particular deck was Conductive Current. This is a spicy card, so I'm going to read this for the crafties. Three red mana sorcery at rare conductive current deals three damage to each creature choose an instant or sorcery card in your hand it perpetually gains if this spell would deal non-combat damage to a permanent or player it deals that much damage plus two instead yeah it was really fun to get my board wiped and to get smacked in the face by a hasty dragon and then to get burned to the face for like five damage i really enjoyed that as well this card got cast against me once and i was playing some mimi mono white deck it was brutal I haven't seen too much of it, really just that one time played. So I'm curious where it will fit in, especially since I honestly feel like Mono White got the hard nerf. I don't know. I think that people are trying to play it like it used to be, and it's not going to be that way for a very long time. The The hits to Faceless Haven and Aspirant are really big. I found them a lot bigger than I thought they would be. The perpetual sizing stuff is really powerful. So I'm going to read this card, Tenacious Pup really quick because I think it kind of highlights the perpetual sizing stuff. There's a few cards that perpetually size things up. So Tenacious Pup is one green for a 1-2. When it enters the battlefield you gain one life and when you cast your next creature spell, the creature enters the battlefield with an additional plus one plus one counter, trample counter, and vigilance counter. So for one mana you get a decent body and a life, but the next creature you play is gonna be ripped. It's gonna have trample, vigilance, and another plus one plus one counter. I found the white cards just getting brickwalled all the time. And those Luminarch Aspirant counters that used to be just like, you know, we're at parity. I'll just play the Aspirant and now my creature's better than yours and I get in for this attack. And it doesn't work that way anymore. I found that to be a big hit. And now the white deck, every time I play against it, I'm doing something I haven't done against it in years. I can just block their stuff. <laughs> and, and it's really brutal. <laughs> There's like a lot of these cheap bodies that come down and do something now. They're all over the place in this format. And white doesn't like it. The white needs a revamp. I, I think it got a really hard nerf with Epiphany possibly being the hardest, but white ain't what it used to be. 
everything else got a lot better. That has been interesting. I have felt like I've had more game against these white decks, which is funny because sure, those are nerfs, but they don't feel on the face of it. They don't feel like they should be enough to just take the deck a whole tier down. It highlights a couple of things. A of all, white has been nerfed, but I also think it just highlights like what you're talking about, that it feels like the rest of the format got stuff. And it feels like the stuff that we got is helping us against decks like these white decks. Um, which, I mean, it feels really, really good, actually. <laughs> I have to say, like, there's a lot of different creatures flying around. I don't know if this is going to end up being a creature format, but I saw a lot of other white decks. Let's talk about the whole Angels Clerics pile. Definitely got some help. Clerics might be absolutely nuts. And the card I want to highlight first there, maybe this is what you had in mind. I want to talk about kind of the hope for white decks, probably the best card they got, which is Inquisitor Captain. Oh yeah, that card is nasty. To read the card, it's a three and a white for a three, three human cleric. It's rare and it has vigilance. And when Inquisitor Captain enters the battlefield, if there are 20 or more creature cards with mana value three or less among cards in your graveyard hand and library, seek two creature cards with mana value three or less. Put one of them onto the battlefield and shuffle the other into your library. It's a lot like Sorcery Speed Collective Company where one of your hits is always a 3-3 Vigilance. The other hit is very often like a 3-mana card that's pretty powerful because you get the choice of two. So every now and then it'll just give you the choice of two of your one drop, and that sucks. But for the most part, this thing is just always hitting. In Clerics, have you experienced what it's like to have the opponent go, like, turn to any of the Clerics that grow, either the Cleric of Life's Bond or the voice of the blessed. Turn three, Righteous Valkyrie. Turn four, this card and another Righteous Valkyrie. Uh, it happens more than you think it should. Let me let me promise you that. The explosive power of this card is absolutely wild. I also, I don't know where or how it happened. Somebody got perpetually reduced the cost of this card. I think it was like using absorb energy. And then they played it. Somehow they hit the other Inquisitor Captain. That's absolutely gross. You just chain them off. You gotta love that, man. So, like, this card is kind of the hope, I think, for the white decks. And I think you do play it in mono-white because you have such awesome threes. And, you know, my mono-white has a lot of, like, twos of a million different kinds of three drops so that you can try to combine the ones that make the most sense for you. The thing is, I don't know if it's supposed to be the mono-white card because it's so good in green-white and it's so good in clerics and it's really good in these multicolor decks. I talked about the blue deck where I think they absorbed energy to perpetually reduce their cost and it's like, holy crap, these things, uh, they can go pretty nuts. You can go Boros and grab a Tarl's Disciple off of this thing. That's not bad either. The first time that card resolved against me, I like leaned forward in my chair and I was like, it does what? You get what out of your card? I kind of agree. Like, I feel I feel like white is getting reconfigured into like a little bit more of a value deck, a little bit more of a mid-range deck, a little bit more of a like, I'm really good against sweepers deck. Against the previous iterations of mono white, if you got off one good meat hook massacre or just like really one well-timed sweeper, that was often enough to just slow the roll enough to get back in charge of the game. And now I feel like if you get one of those off and your opponent still has maybe one or two cards in hand and they just get down an Inquisitor Captain, you kind of feel like you're starting all over again, right? Uh, you also mentioned Torolf's Disciple. Better read that one because... Yeah, this card's got some fans. It's two and a red for a 3-3 three, three human warrior. 
with haste. It's a rare. And when Toros Disciple attacks, conjure four cards named Lightning Bolt into your library, then shuffle. For you Zoomers who didn't mess with Strixhaven Mystical Archive much, Lightning Bolt is this card that's banned in Historic. And has been since the moment it was printed in Historic. And it's one red for an instant that deals three damage to any target. Okay, so here's my question for you, CGB. Of the many times you probably saw this card resolve and get in, how many lightning bolts did you actually see get cast as a result of this card being in play? Two. It happened in the same game. The opponent attacked me once with a Tauros Disciple. They played some other nonsense. They got me to six. They cast Reckless Impulse, exiled the top two cards of their library. They were both Lightning Bolt to win the game. Yeah. Two bolts? Oh! (laughs) Okay, that's brutal. Because I had this card attack me so many times, I didn't see one bolt. Not one bolt. It almost made me wonder if they specifically put some little algorithm juice in the shuffler to make sure that the next card you drew would never be a lightning bolt. You're just lucky and you're flexing on less fortunate people like me. That's all. (laughs) It could be. But here's the thing. I expected lightning bolts to be coming out of my eyeballs. You know what I mean? Like I expected this to be like the freaking lightning storm descending upon alchemy. I didn't see it. Anyway, I'm curious. I'm sure that there are other shuffler truthers out there who are just going to town on this. Like, how did I not draw a lightning bolt? I have eight of them in my deck now. <laughs> you know what? They're off their salt raging. Like, I just drew another land instead. I have like 17 of those in my deck. How did I not draw the eight lightning bolts? <laughs> I saw a screenshot on Twitter. It was someone literally saying they had 16 lightning bolts nabbed out of their deck with test of talents. <laughs> right? That's the slow clap right there. <laughs> That, that blue mage must have felt very, very good about that. A true CGB disciple. Toralf's Disciple, a card which I think, I don't know, I'm taking the under on this card. I, I think it's a sweet card. I think people are maybe overestimating how good it is. What's your sense of that? One of the last decks I played before the release of Alchemy for a video was Mono Red, and I actually went 7-0. Like, I smashed with it. It was really good. And I don't know if Disciple is an upgrade from Reckless Stormseeker for that deck, but that deck also ran Creepy Puppeteer. I think Townraiser Tyrant's an upgrade to that, so I don't know. I, I think Red might have a future, but I don't know how many Taros Disciples it should run. I wouldn't craft it right away unless it is your dream to Lightning Bolt face. It seems like an interesting card, but we'll have to add it to one of the great scams in Magic. Shuffling copies of a card into your deck is not the same as drawing them. It sure isn't. Well, and that's the thing. It's like Lightning Bolt's a strong card. It's definitely a card that mono red mages are going to want in their deck. I just think that it's interesting that you're getting them starting on turn three or later. And that really changes the texture, right? At what point in the game do we want to start and or stop drawing Lightning Bolts? I think that's a really interesting question. Lightning Bolt is much better in a deck where maybe you have a number of them in your opening hand. You can just fit them into your curve. You can like on turn two, you play a one drop creature and then you just bolt your opponent's face. I don't I don't know like later in the game, maybe top decking Lightning Bolt is like the thing that you want to be doing, but I'm not so sure. The dedicated Red Mages have completely tuned out of your philosophical discussion. They want to draw Lightning Bolt every turn. Every turn is the answer. They want to be drawing Lightning Bolt after the game is over. But I agree. I mean, Mono Red is fun. Um, I got to play against this card, Rahilda Wanted Cutthroat. 
which uh, I thought was pretty interesting. This card, it had a lot of um, Robber of the Rich vibes to me. So let me read this one off. Rahil the Wanted Cutthroat, one and a red. Legendary creature human werewolf at Mythic, by the way. It's a 2-2 first strike. When Rahil the Wanted Cutthroat deals combat damage to a player, exile a non-land card from their library at random. During any turn you attacked with a wolf or werewolf, you may cast that card. You may spend mana as though it were mana of any color to cast that spell. That's the daybound side. The nightbound side has double strike. Witchcrafties, this actually did happen to me. If this thing hits you twice, they grab two cards. Seems pretty decent. And it basically has the same rules text on it. So out of the many werewolves decks that I played, I saw a decent amount of Rohilda and it did the thing, man. This card was no slouch. Here's the question I have for you. How does this compare to Robber of the Rich? Better? Worse? You don't get the trigger just for attacking. You have to hit them, which can be harder, but you can definitely build your deck in such a way that your first striker or double striker is not convenient to block and is very threatening. Uh, Playing it with any kind of direct damage spell is very frustrating for the opponent because they don't know if they should block it. And then probably the biggest difference from Robber of the Rich that can potentially make this better, the biggest difference is it doesn't have haste. Robber of the Rich, you could almost always get your money if you timed it well. It sucks to lose haste, but the fact that this, it pulls a non-land card because of its digital onlyness means that it's not going to whiff like Robber would. Whatever card you hit, you're going to be able to cast, and Robber was a pretty inconvenient type for red. It was a rogue, and you had to attack with a rogue to turn on the ability. This means all you have to do to get to cast the card, once you do have a hit in, is you have to attack with a wolf or werewolf. And there's plenty of wolf and werewolf out there. There's some hasty wolf and werewolf out there in various forms. And in both mono red and in wolves, this card, almost every time it's played, has at least pulled something nasty off me. It's done something rude. This card has impressed me. Maybe it was just opponents getting lucky. Maybe they drew all the right things. But like you said, man, it's not hard to get a deck full of werewolves. I think this card has a future. It's a very good combo with Reckless Stormseeker. Also a very good combo with Tenacious Pup. This thing with the plus one, plus one, and the Vigilance, and the Trample. Oh my god. So, so exactly. The benefit of the Robber was that you often got in at least one free attack with it. The benefit of Rahilda is that any attack that you make is just going to be so much harder for your opponent to deal with, right? So I think you're going to have less of that scenario where you had to kind of suicide your Robber on a later turn just to get the card that you'd exiled off of it. Paired with the burn spell, paired with the buffs, all that kind of stuff. I just feel like this card has overall a lot more versatility in combat, I feel like, than Robber did. It doesn't have that sneaky reach, which came up, you know, every once in a, <laughs> in a blue moon. I don't know. I was impressed with this card. Without haste, it's worse against removal, but uh, with first strike and potentially double strike and the other abilities, it's better as it sticks to the board. So better in creature matchups. Absolutely. So yeah, I'd say overall, I felt like red felt like it got some good buffs, some real powerful creatures. Yeah, I expect to see, you know, like gruel decks, mono red decks of various kinds looking pretty good in this format. You know what else is looking good from the mono colored side? There have been clips of this one all over the place, and it does look really good, is uh, Mono Black. The Mono Black Sacrifice type deck. Let's talk about that. I'm sure you were thinking this too, but the, the, what is it, Brush Stroke? Sanguine Brush Stroke is the card I want to start with. One Black Black, you get an enchantment. It's rare. 
And when Sanguine Brushstroke enters the battlefield, create a blood token and conjure a card named Blood Artist onto the battlefield. Whenever you sacrifice a blood token, each opponent loses one life and you gain one life. You guys probably know Blood Artist. It's in Historic. Pretty iconic magic card at this point. Not going to get nerfed or buffed or changed anytime soon, I don't think. One in a black for an 0-1 vampire. Whenever Blood Artist or another creature dies, target player loses one life and you gain one life. It doesn't look like a big deal, but the amount you get for this 3 mana you get the enchantment that sticks around you get the blood token that sticks around you get the blood artist that goes directly to the battlefield so all this stuff happens now whenever your blood token is sacrificed you drain and whenever a creature dies on either side of the battlefield you drain getting all that for three mana it looks like a bastion of remembrance at first, that's easier to kill, but it's actually a lot more than that. And when you combine it with Meat Hook Massacre and uh, all the other cheap sacrifice stuff and Fell Stinger, it feels like you can't lose. I've been playing this deck today, and the opponents will get all kinds of very impressive board states, and you're just like, yeah, don't care, chump with this block with that. It runs Cursebound Witch, which is one black for a 1-2. Human Warlock, when it dies, draft a card from Cursebound Witch's spellbook. This one's an uncommon, by the way. So this spellbook has like 15 cards. You get to look at three chosen at random and pick one. One is Cauldron Familiar, and one is Witch's Oven. So every single time I have the choice of a Cauldron Familiar or Witch's Oven, I take it to try to assemble the combo. There's a number of other perfectly fine cards that you can hit in the spellbook that are just kind of obnoxious little black cards that are witch-themed, and most of them are just any kind of good piece of cardboard adds to the drain thing. There's a number of curses, the torment of scarabs, the curse of leeches, you know, these things add to the drain thing because they just whittle the opponent down over time. But I always take the cat or the oven when I can to try to put them together. I can't help myself. Well, I want to ask you, did you do the thing or did you see the thing done? Nope. Okay, me neither. I haven't had anyone cat oven me either, but Witch's Oven? A hell of a magic card, man. That card didn't stop being good, dude. And uh, another spicy card that you can actually get off of this witch is Witch's Vengeance. And uh, I'll tell you what, man, I had a matchup versus humans where uh, that Witch's Vengeance came in clutch. So being able to get an actual factual board wipe off of your sacked one mana creature feels pretty decent. I've been impressed with this Cursebound Witch, man. I think this is going to be like just an absolute staple of any sack deck in alchemy. How about the Mythic? Have you had um, Cruel Reality yet? Oh, that seven drop? <laughs> I had the option. I probably sacked the creature on turn two, so I didn't pick it because I wasn't in in any danger of casting it anytime soon. But yeah, I mean, that's a spicy one to hit, especially in the mid to late game, for sure. Uh, opponent has to sacrifice a creature or they take five damage. Is that what that card is? Yeah, they have to sacrifice a creature, planeswalker, or take five damage at the beginning of their upkeep, and it's an enchantment curse. It's like five black black or something. It's a pretty chonky enchantment. That is a game ender, man, if you can get that down. It goes to work, without question. So yeah, Cursebound, which I'm impressed. The real question, CGB, I I feel like Shambling Ghast is a far off. I feel like Cursebound Witch is a far off. Are we going to play the full 12 with iTwitch in these decks? I'm doing it right now. I never want to have a Deadly Dispute go uncast or a Fell Stinger go unexploited. I'm just not going to risk it. Those patterns are too powerful. The card advantage is too nice. So yeah, I'm just running the full 12 one-drops. And of course, we haven't mentioned it, but the unsung hero of the deck is Meat Hook Massacre, which when you team up with Blood Artist... 
does an absurd amount of damage very quickly. It's so nasty, yeah. And I did get Fell stung to death a couple times as well, you know. That card, just being able to deal the final two points of life loss can be everything. The deck also kind of resurrects a card that hasn't been cast much lately, Agadim's Awakening. You actually have this curve because you conjure the Blood Artist. When you conjure the Blood Artist and it goes to the graveyard and you can get it back, yeah, it's not a token. So using the digital-only mechanics, you actually have like a full awakening where you almost always have a one-drop. You get your Blood Artist as your two-drop and your three-drop... Uh, that's Felstinger, usually. Maybe Skullport Merchant, and um, it's really good. Totally agree. I've already been in on these Felstinger Agadim's Awakening decks from the regular standard format. Of course, I was playing this kind of Demir Zombie list. Those combos were very good in that list, and they continue to be absolutely fantastic in these lists. I made a post about this on Twitter the other day, but I think that this some permutation of this mono black sack list, I think is going to be a top tier deck in the format moving forward. Agreed, agreed. Another thing to note as well, man, and I'm sure that you've encountered this pain before as well, when you're facing down Blood Artist and your answer is a board wipe, that just really doesn't get it done in a lot of places. The best way to deal with Blood Artist is really spot removal. You want to be able to just take that thing out for one mana or even have a creature kill it or something like that. But if you're trying to kill it by wiping the board, you're probably just killing yourself in the process. With a traditional board wipe, what if I told you there was a new board wipe that for only three mana exiled all creatures and hit artifacts just because why not? Yeah, I mean, that card seems like a match made in heaven when you're facing off against one of these sack decks. So this is the Purge card, right? Divine Purge is one white white for a rare sorcery, and it says exile all artifacts and creatures with mana value three or less. They perpetually gain. This spell costs X more to cast, and this permanent enters the battlefield tapped. For as long as each of them remains exiled, the owner may play them. So it's not a card advantage positive board wipe, because technically they still have the option to cast all these cards. But the amount of mana it will cost them kind of turns their cards into pretty bad cards overall. So if you have a way to take over the game or gain massive card advantage late, this is basically a three mana exile effect that hits everything at three mana or less, regardless of size, which is a huge deal because of cards like Old Growth Troll and uh, all the werewolves. And I found Divine Purge to be insane. One of my favorite play patterns with the card is Leer. Just Leer. Just playing it again because it's perpetual. It stacks. All the creatures you exile, like it costs another two to cast them. So then you fading hope that creature costs the additional two later. And you can cast this and it doesn't sweep Leer. You know, Leer stays on the battlefield. It's a really nasty card. I could imagine this being pretty decent in like a mono white mirror, right? Well, let's say you have Skyclave Apparition out and you get your Skyclave Apparition back and then you get to come play it again. All that kind of stuff. I mean, maybe that's janky and terrible, but you have the possibility of essentially bouncing your own stuff with this as well and recasting it. So you can get that ETB trigger benefit from it as well. I don't think it works in the white mirror. Maybe not. With the cost increase, I think that the key is just having the mana to replay these cards. I've run it with cards like Geist Channeler, which was one in a blue for 1-3. When it enters the battlefield, choose an instant or sorcery card in your hand. Mana value 3 or greater. It perpetually gains. It costs 2 less to cast. And playing my deck where I'm using a lot of perpetual cost reduction and also some artifact ramp, casting this again and again is kind of a possibility. 
I don't think you want to do it in any deck that doesn't have some kind of ramp element because you need to hit every land to keep up on this stuff and Divine Purge punishes anybody who misses a land drop really hard. And aggro decks can't hit all their land drops usually. If they do, they're usually losing. So it's an interesting kind of development, I would say, to how the format plays with cards like Divine Purge. It also makes Fading Hope so good. You know how Fading Hope a 1-1 is bad? Well, Fading Hoping a 1-1 that costs two extra to play perpetually is not bad. Pretty, yeah, the perpetual thing. I imagine, like, this could get really annoying as well if you pet it with cards like um, Flood of Tears card from the latest set that bounces everything. I'm never going to endorse it. Consuming Tide or something. Is a... <laughs> Consuming Tide, yeah, yeah, yeah. It might be right, but I tried that card and it was terrible. Maybe not good enough, but I think Divine Purge is really sweet for sure. I had this card be surprisingly annoying against me even just playing a Celestis deck. Oh, here's another thing, right? It sweeps tokens. So if you're trying to like stack up treasure and blood tokens and stuff like that, that just gets rid of all of them. Fateful absence clues get blown away. So there's, yeah, there's a lot of really cool play patterns with it for sure. Let's cut to the Celestis because it reminds me of the next card which I wanted to talk about, which I'm sure you've had a lot of fun playing with, which is Key to the Archive. This card is good and it might actually just be Frickin' busted, dude. I was trouncing people with this card. So key to the archive, four mana artifact at rare. Key to the archive enters the battlefield tapped. When key to the archive enters the battlefield, draft a card from key to the archive spellbook, then discard a card. And, oh, there's that little thing of it taps to add two mana in any combination of colors. Um, basically what this does is a mana rock that comes in tapped. You get to draft, hopefully, a sweet card from the archive. You do have to discard a card from your hand, so it's not card advantageous. But, I mean, if you look at the spellbook for this, there are some powerful, powerful, powerful cards. We have Counterspell, the OG original Counterspell. We have Demonic Tutor, just a little magic card you may have heard of. We have a Wrath Effect. It's Day of Judgment, I think, so you can get a board wipe off of this. You can get some really game-changing cards off of this card. So basically, this is what I was doing. was So Teferi Who Slows the Sunset, in my opinion, wasn't quite good enough when you were just playing with cards like the Celestis. But oh my goodness, once you have Key to the Archive in play... Teferi, who busts the format wide open, is, is really what that card starts to feel like. So I had this Bant deck that I was playing along with another card, Settle the Wilds. So Settle the Wilds, one green green sorcery at Uncommon. Seek a basic land card and put it onto the battlefield tapped. Then seek a permanent card with mana value equal to the number of lands you control. So the seeking the basic land, it finds one at random from your deck and puts it into play. So don't get that twisted crafties. I actually, I didn't quite understand what was going to happen there. I was hoping to get the selection. You don't get to, but it's still usually fine. One weird thing that was happening on the release was that it was also seeking a phantom land of the same kind and putting it in your hand. And it was a card that you could actually drag around and it looked like a real card. Fortunately for the purpose of the gameplay, Arena didn't actually register it as a card, so it didn't actually break the rules of the game. But it does get very confusing over the course of a game to have a number of phantom lands stacking up in your hand. Uh, Settle the Wilds was definitely one of the cards that I was most excited about because it's just, this is like the most Arjuna card ever. And so what I did was I built this Bant deck which was based around Settle the Wilds, Key to the Archive, and Teferi who slows the sunset. Conveniently, if you play Settle the Wilds on curve with three lands out, 
you get another mana, and then if the only two four drops in your deck are Key to the Archive and Teferi Slows the Sunset, then you end up getting half of the combo, which was pretty sweet. Another nice thing is that this card ramps you and Key to the Archive ramps you as well. And so basically what this deck was trying to do was your first Settler Wilds maybe gets you like Key to the Archive, and then your second Settler Wilds a little bit later on in the game gets you, oh, I don't know, maybe Hullbreaker Horror is a, is a card I was playing plenty of, plus the mana to cast it and do all kinds of fun stuff. So this was the Bandit deck that I was running, and I was having tremendous fun. Yeah, the Key to the Archive to Fairy combo is like just absolutely insanely fantastically good. That, that's what I was doing with Key to the Archive. I'm going to hand it over to you, CGB, because I know you have a number of thoughts going on here. I was going to ask what you did with all the mana. Most of the things that I did was try to get Ren and um, Cultivator Colossus cooking. Oh, there you go. That's fun. It is interesting with Settle the Wilds. Like if you use it to hit exactly seven lands and you are you have like one seven drop in your deck, that's Cultivator Colossus, you get it. I had the Tarask in my deck because why not? <laughs> I tried that. I was playing Jadzi as well. Jadzi. Oh, I was wondering if I could find something for the eight. Jadzi's way better than mine. I was, I was running Bookworm. Oh, <laughs> uh, Bookworm's not a bad card either though. Yeah. No, Jadzi's so so much smarter because you can always cast the the green side if you draw it. You don't even need to splash the blue if you don't want to. I, I was doing a lot of like green, mono green stuff. I was also running Jadzi and the Terrasque in my deck and I ended up having to take them out because Tinfoil Hat on the Arena Shuffler was like, you want these cards in your opening hand? You must really need them this game. Oh, I'm going to give you that card to draw this game. That's really what's going to get you out of this difficult situation. Two cards in the deck, CGB. Two cards in the deck, drew them every time. Mordenkainen. <laughs> I did run Mordenkainen as well. Nice. So here was, a, here was a tricky thing that I was doing in my band deck. So I put Xanathar in the deck because you can actually cast it off of the key. So I was just freaking searching up Xanathar and getting people that way. This has become the jank podcast. Who are you? <laughs> <laughs> so the original version of the deck had all of this nonsense in it. I was also running a, a singleton copy of Omnath because why not? Well, key to the archive, it sounds like we did some similar stuff like Breaking Teferi and things like that. And it looks like just this really fun card. Uh, a card that we didn't mention that you can pull out of it is Approach of the Second Sun. Yup, I did lose to that the other day. Yeah, I have a pretty memorable win on my YouTube channel with this card now. For those who didn't see it, at the end of the Approach uh, video that I put up, I ended my stream and I just logged on to like a game for fun to like record for the YouTube to try to get a video made. I was ready to just post my stream for the YouTube video, but I was like, eh, I'll see if I can get like one good game because it was a little short. It was like 30 minutes. I queue up against Crokies just immediately. Let's go, gamers. Let's go. And Crokies is playing, is it? But it's not Epiphany. It, he's like doing Galvanic Iteration Magma Opus with this card that I actually do think is busted that we haven't talked about yet, Discover the Formula, which is four blue-blue instant rare, seek three non-land cards. Then non-land cards in your hand perpetually gain this spell cost one less to cast. It sounds like six mana is too much for three cards, but then when you realize that they're non-land cards and that they all cost one less to cast each, then you realize, oh, this kind of paid for itself in a way because you get at least three mana back. If you have five cards in your hand, you get five mana back. If you have seven cards in your hand, you get seven mana back. The cost reduction 
is huge. And then, of course, if you can cast things again from your graveyard or shuffle them back into your deck, Perpetual is until the end of the game, no matter how many zones you change. So it pays for itself over time. And if you think about this copied with Galvanic Iteration, it's like, oh my god. It's so strong. So Crokies is doing all that stuff. He's got like a million mana and a million treasures, and he's got a million cards in hand, and I'm like, I can't possibly win. My hand is two divine purges the, and a faithful absence or something. I've just got nothing over here. I, I play Key to the Archive, and I'm given the option of Approach the Second Sun. Okay, we take Approach the Second Sun, I guess. And I cast it, and it resolves, and it goes back in the deck. I'm like, okay. So the next turn, he pops off, does like a million things, but he doesn't have that much mana open, and I draw this card, uh, Witness the Future. Do you remember what that does? It's two and a blue. Shuffle four cards from your graveyard into your library and then look at your top four, select a card, and you can cast it. And you hit it? You hit the approach? Oh, God. <laughs> Gosh, you just jumped right to the end. Thanks, big spoils. Knowing I was probably a million miles behind and had to make a risky play, I just cast Witness. I shuffled zero cards back into my deck to give myself max odds. I had like 40 cards in my deck, and it shuffled Approach into the top four, cast it win. Got him. Got him. All that to say Approach is pretty nuts to have in the archive. The thing that I've started to see that makes me nervous, Time Warp is a card in the archive. The, the nerds have done the math that you're about 20% to get offered a Time Warp. They nerfed Epiphany, but what about that kind of tipping point for turns where this like ramps you into seven mana, but it's also like 20% to hit a time warp. So I'm starting to see like, is it Epiphany Galvanic Iteration decks that just play Key to the Archive instead of all of the unexpected windfalls? They just play this ramp spell that might also give them another turn. So even if they don't Iteration, they might have two turns in a row anyway. Plus Divide by Zero gives you another shot at it. Uh, yeah, Divide by Zero and Key is a slow but possible combo in the way that Meat Hook Massacre divide by zero was. You can bounce the key and play it again. Seeing a little of that doesn't come up too often. It's just kind of a cute play. Here's the absolute grossest thing that I did in my band deck. Uh, I managed to get out. I had Teferi, Key to the Archive, and the Rootbound Mana Dock, whatever that guy's name is. So I managed to have these out. I only had four lands, by the way. I was mana screwed, but I managed to get these pieces out. I think I could make it was either 11 or 12 mana a turn with the combination of Teferi, Key, Mana Dark, and Untapping the Land as well. It seems good. So I got, anyway, I hit the Time Warp off of the Key. I then proceed to draw Leer. I then proceed to take an extra turn, play my Leer, take another extra turn, all the while, I'm just untapping all of this nonsense, generating upwards of 12 mana a turn. My opponent did not, in fact, win that game. I was like, wow, we can do this in quote-unquote standard? We can do this in alchemy? Seems pretty good. A time warp, it reminded me of how fun it is to have time warp on your side of the battlefield. I was also remembering how dismal it is to, uh, you know, in fact, have your opponent doing it. It's also got to be pretty dismal to be able to galvanic copy it for only seven mana. In case anybody was wondering about it or missed it, one of the differentiators of time warp and other turns cards that have been printed more recently, it doesn't exile. So Time Warp and Leer does work, and I've done that a few times now. It's not very nice. So we nerfed Epiphany, but we put Time Warp in the format, kinda. 
for the lucky the lucky whitelisted players get to time warp. It is brutal. So yeah, key to the archive is one of those cards I have an eye on. They might need to change the spell book or just do something to that card. I mean, granted, it's a four mana mana rock that comes intact, so that's it can be kind of hard to fit it into your curve. But it also adds two mana to your mana pool, and like that amount of perpetual ramp for the rest of the game, it just gets absolutely ridiculous. I don't know, man. I, I feel like this card might need to get addressed in some way. I've played against it with Teleportation Circle, and I've also played Teleportation Circle because Demonic Tutor is one of the hits, so having one Teleportation Circle in your deck is kind of a low-cost thing. I honestly don't think it's... Everybody has probably spammed in comments already Teleportation Circle. I don't think it's the way. You just don't need it. The cards are so powerful. You don't need to, like, flicker him and get a million. Usually one leverage well is better than most of your opponent's top decks, so... You should be able to win. I totally agree. I think if you're using the ramp to just cast cards like Discover the Formula and stuff, there should be no need to do other nonsense like that. Yeah, Discover the Formula, by the way, I mean, you definitely already touched on it, but this is another card which I'm a little worried about. So Geist Channeler making a Discover the Formula cheaper is just like one of the quickest ways to absolutely destroy an opponent. And then of course, yeah, you can just get Discover the Formula back with Leer again. I mean, it's just like things can get out of hand quickly. You know what I'm saying? Those perpetuals, they last when you use Leer. You get to cast them from the graveyard for that reduced cost. Blue ain't getting any worse over here, that's for sure. Another blue card I wanted to ask you about, because I'm sure you tried it. What did you end up thinking of Absorb Energy? That's the uh, counter spell. Meh. Yeah. I didn't love it. I mean, maybe in like Blue Spirits or Tempo where you can reduce the cost of either spells or creatures. But in the decks I play, there are mostly spells and I end up playing against a lot of creature decks. It's just cancel because you're not reducing the cost of your creatures. Don't Kraken and Leah go into these decks? I feel like that could... Not many. A handful. Not enough to reliably have in your hand on turn three. But I was thinking that making either of those cards cheaper is a big game. Oh yeah, that's why you do it with Discover the Formula. You, you use Geist Channeler to reduce Discover the Formula, then you use Discover the Formula to reduce everything else, and next thing you know, like I did on my release stream, your mascot exhibition costs zero. If your whole break of horror feels nasty at six mana, that thing being perpetually more like five mana. I played it for four. And the thing is, right, that what people might forget, that's forever, man. You can bounce that thing back to your hand as many times as you want, and it's still going to cost four mana. That is just absolutely busted. Well, we covered quite a lot of ground here. Were there any other cards or decks or archetypes from the alchemy release that we haven't touched on that you feel a burning desire to bring up for the crafties? There's a ton of things I haven't tried, but we've touched on all the cards that made big impressions on me, so I'm good. I feel about the same way. Honestly, that feels like so much more to explore with this set. I feel like there are a number of pretty powerful white cards, such as Captain Eberhard. We haven't even really begun to just as a community, like, really explore the potential power of. I mean, there's just a lot of strong cards here to look at. I, I think we have a lot to look forward to in this format. I guess before we wrap up, I just wanted to check in on the bigger picture of alchemy. There's been a lot of speculation, there's been a lot of hate in the community for various reasons. And I just wanted to get a gut check from you, CGB. After having played in the format for a couple of days, after having seen a lot of reactions, after having seen your Twitch chat, watch you play the format, all of this kind of stuff, how are you feeling about the format and how do you think the general reception has been 
to the format so far. Nice sneaky here at the end because, you know, the people still here are obviously the fans. They can they can handle the truth. All right, cool. Gosh, I've never seen people this mad at me. <laughs> you know? I guess there were some, like, hate videos posted on Reddit and, and some hate videos posted on YouTube when I did, like, the 13 land shuffler is rigged video. I don't remember the last time anything like this happened. I'm having a lot of fun. The drafting cards and just kind of almost sneaking cards into standard, whether it's with a card like Tireless Angler, which whenever you play an island gets a card from a spell book, or whether it's with something like Key to the Archive, I'm really enjoying that whole effect. Um, perpetual cost reduction, I'm really enjoying that. Just the making things cheaper just kind of redefines what you have to play around, what you can play into, what your outs are. It's pretty wild. I don't have a lot of complaints about the gameplay. I also feel like a lot of different decks are powerful. I feel like it's a good format with a lot of really fun cards. That's probably going to be the most telling thing about what I'm going to do in the future is what I'm having fun with. There's probably a lot of alchemy in my future. And as far as the community goes, a vast majority of people seem really supportive. I think it can best be defined by a comment I got on my first alchemy YouTube video. It said, congrats, bro, you just lost half your audience. I read that comment and I looked at the watch statistics. It was not the number one video for the last 30 days, but it was like number two for the first 24 hours. So it's like my second most watched video in the last 30 days. All the other ones were standard. I didn't lose half the audience yet. I also got a lot of I'm unsubscribing, I'm never watching you again talk. But net, I was up subscribers for the day. I guess I have to let them go. They'll be back. If you can't enjoy magic, you shouldn't play. I've said this all the time. It's a game. It is a voluntary activity, and we get really addicted to stuff. But if you really aren't enjoying it, you shouldn't play. Not everybody has to do it for a job or the value. I'm one of those who does have to wake up most of the time and play magic. And over a thousand days in a row, I've done that. And I still find a lot of joy in it. And I will still tell anybody, if you don't, don't play. It's the worst thing you can do to yourself, honestly, because you're going to blame the game, you're going to blame the content creators, you're going to blame wizards, you're going to blame all these people for something that's kind of going on with you. Like, you've moved a little past magic right now, you need something else in your life, and that's okay. Go do it if you need to. But, man, the, the tendency to just kind of hang out and put down the thing that they don't like, nobody else should have it either. This is the other epiphany I had. I'm going to go out on a limb here. The money thing, the rares, the mythics. Arjuna, it's a good thing that magic's expensive. Because if it weren't, some of the brightest people in our society would contribute nothing to society. We'd sit on our butt, we'd go work the bare hours that we need to afford to play cheap magic. The fact that it's a frickin' whale client means a lot of us really big brains do actually get off our butt, leave the MTG arena, go to school, go to work, earn those dollars. It's good for the world because if we got to all, Japan they call it hikikomori, just sit on magic all day for cheap, it's an addicting game, man. People would just never leave their house. Dystopian nightmare. I got motivated at a very young age. I didn't have money and I wanted to play this expensive freaking game. I have used that as motivation for well over 20 years now to get out there and try to earn money, to really work at it, and to try to be the best at everything I do. Otherwise, I'd probably still be working. Well, I wouldn't because they don't exist anymore, but I'd be trying to work in something like a record store in the mall, you know, with a name tag because I was pretty happy doing that in my 20s, except for one little thing. I want some foil magic cards, man. <laughs> 
I want some dual lands back in my life. Couldn't buy that cardboard, man. You couldn't keep up his crack habit. <laughs> there you have it, folks. Wizards contributing to society by motivating the nerds. I love it, man. Well said on all of that. The only thing that I wanted to add to it was that Alchemy, it felt more like a new set release to me than I was expecting. I was hoping to have a little bit more of standard reimagined vibe, right? And I mean, we were definitely playing with a lot of standard cards, but it almost to me felt like we were playing with new set release in Historic. It was almost like a junior Historic set release or something like that. Existing format, but a bunch of new cards and a number of new archetypes. One thing that I'd love to see them do in the intervening time is I'd like to see some more nerfs, frankly. I think that there are plenty of existing cards that are already in standard slash alchemy, which I think could really benefit. I think that Wizards is being careful about this. I feel like I'm peering behind the curtain a little bit here when they're not in a hurry to just totally flip standard on its head by changing all of the cards. I think that they're aware that changing cards, is it still feels a little bit sacred slash sacrilegious of a thing to do. And so I feel like Wizards is being very careful about it. But I would like to see for the next month's patch or whatever, I'd like to see a number of buffs. I think that that would really help. You know, they might need to nerf some of these new alchemy only cards as well, because some of them are looking very strong. I want to see them lean into the rebalancing aspect of this to really get some cards that are still not seeing play in alchemy their full due. And you know what I didn't see any copies of CGB? And it's not that it surprised me, but I just had to kind of crack a wry smile at it. No elixirs of the cosmos, not a one on the battlefield. Made me sad. You gotta get out of that rank queue, man. <laughs> I guess so, dude. That was my first and last mistake there. As long as key to the archive is in the format, I will not be casting an elixir anytime soon. Cheers. Cheers. So with that, let's wrap this one up for the day. Thanks so much for joining us on the Alchemy Craft podcast. That's a joke, by the way, crafties. I actually had some people on my streams who seemed to be semi, perhaps, taking it seriously about the whole rebrand. Really? I think people were, like, actually worried about it. It's the internet, man. Some people are worried about everything. Either that or their sense of humor is even drier than mine is. Arena Craft, uh, you can find us most of the places, probably all of the places. We're on Spotify. We're on all of your regular podcasty, listeny places. You can watch Kovac Go Blue and I having a conversation with our smiling mugs on his YouTube channel. So just go on YouTube and look for Kovac Go Blue. You can see the wonderful little expression he's giving you right now. You can also catch Kovac Go Blue streaming every week, multiple times on Twitch. I also stream intermittently on Twitch, so you can come and look for me there as well. I uh, wanted to give a shout out to our patrons. We've kept on adding a number of new patrons over these last couple of weeks, and we could not appreciate you more. You keep us in business. You help us to do what we do. You help us to keep motivated. You help us to pay our editors, which is a big deal. Thanks so much to y'all. I'll hand it over to you, CGB, but I'm out. Later, crafties. Later, crafties.